I hear you say you're just one voice Just a sinner saved by grace And though you know you've made your choice You wonder how one voice can make a difference One spark can light the dark In a world in which you know you don't belong just remember what it took to start the song with 12 men one faith one hope one plan the message rang strong and true with 12 men he changed the world forever he can do the same through you One by one he called each name Ordinary men But they'd never be the same Their lives transformed from common to commissioned Called to save the lost In a world in which they knew they won't belong but through his strength the weak become the strong with 12 men one faith one hope one plan the message rang strong and true with 12 men he changed the world forever he can do the same through you so when you think you're just one voice, don't think you're all alone. The Father's strength is yours, and His power is your own. With twelve men, one faith, one hope, one plan, the message rang strong and true. With twelve men, he changed the world forever He can do the same through you With twelve men He changed the world forever Oh, oh, oh. He can do the same through you He can do the same Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for what you alone can do in our lives and through us and with us if we allow you to. Thank you for wanting to use us, Father, for, for picking up the broken, shattered pieces of our lives and turning them into something beautiful. I pray now, Lord, that we would listen to your word with open ears and open hearts. In the precious name of your Son, we pray. Amen. I want to share with you this morning 
a story about a man named Ronald Wayne. It's a little-known story. It's uh, part of one of these Silicon Valley success stories, but it's not his success story. You see, Ron Wayne isn't known so much for what he accomplished as for what he didn't. He's often referred to as the unluckiest man in the world. On April 1st, 1976, six days before this church was founded, Ron Wayne, along with Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs, founded a little company called Apple Computer. He was 42 at the time, and, and Wayne provided much-needed adult supervision for a company full of young creatives. He received a 10% stake in the fledgling company. He drew the first Apple logo. He uh, wrote the three men's original partnership. He even wrote the first Apple One manual. But today his name is virtually unknown. Why? Well, not even two weeks after the company was founded, after a conflict of opinion with, with another co-worker, Ron Wayne made a decision that would forever alter the course of his life. He saw no great future for the company, no place for himself within it. He, he wanted to pursue other interests, and he wholeheartedly thought that now, the company had limited potential. It was a niche market. Who's going to want a personal computer? <laughs> Wayne relinquished his 10% share of the company for $800. This past Friday afternoon, close of the stock market, Apple stock closed at $560 a share, making the company worth about $500 billion. Had Ronald Wayne held on to his company's shares, he would have had in his hands about $50 billion today. But he didn't. He went on to work for several other technical companies. He worked at Atari for a little while. He went on to work for the Lawrence Livermore Lab. He's retired today. He lives in a mobile park home in Nevada where he enjoys his, his stamp and coin collections. He holds a dozen patents, but never had enough capital to make money from any of them. In recent interviews, Ron Wayne says, I have no regrets. But that's just stubborn pride talking. You know he thinks about it every day. <laughs> you know he'd give anything to go back to change that knee-jerk decision, that knee-jerk reaction. You know, he lives with regrets that haunt him every day of his life. Regrets. We hear this word a lot this time of year. As the year comes to a close, we, we take stock of the past 12 months, and some look back even farther. And in almost every case, you can't help but find some regrets. You have some of those? A word spoken in anger, an act committed without thought, perhaps even bigger regrets, attitudes that have developed, wrong paths that have been taken, poor decisions made, relationships lost. You know, live long enough and 
you'll collect your share of regrets. Everyone has them. Some are plagued by them. Therapies and psychological programs have been invented just to deal with them. And I'm sure some of them help. They help you feel a little better, compartmentalize some of your regrets, change the way you think about them or talk about them, but no one can provide a cure for regrets. No one can give you a second chance. No one except God. Amen. Scripture's filled with examples and stories like this, right? Second chances. Humanity saved in an ark and, and given a fresh start. David forgiven of murder and adultery and given a second chance at being the king God knew he could be. Jonah running away from God in disobedience, thrown overboard, swallowed up, spit out, and given a second chance. I love these stories. They're among my favorite in all the Bible. I love second chances. But perhaps none of these stories are, are as great as the second chance offered to a group of failed, scared, broken, trembling disciples gathered in an upper room. Turn with me to our text this morning. Matthew chapter 26. We're going to start reading in verse 31. This is the night of Jesus' arrest. Shortly after his last supper with his followers, his, his disciples. Matthew 26, verse 31. Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come 
and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. Verse 55, In that hour Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Look, every day I sat in the temple courts teaching you, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place, that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. We all know what happens next. Peter goes on to vehemently deny Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. Jesus is put through a sham of a trial, convicted and crucified on that dark Friday. He dies after six agonizing hours on the cross, and he's buried in a borrowed tomb. But what about those disciples? You think they had some regrets? They had abandoned their master. When Jesus needed them, they scampered in fear. When he needed them to be awake, they slept. When he needed them to stand, they ran. And now they're dealing with the shame and regret of their failure. If only I had stood up for him. If only I had said something. If only Jesus' last memory of me wasn't one of me running away. Peter was especially tortured. He didn't just cower in silence. He publicly denied even knowing Jesus. Have you been there? Have you blown it so badly that you're left with nothing but the broken pieces? The, 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 the if-onlys and the armful of regrets. Friend, Jesus is a cure for you today. Not a patch. Not a temporary alteration of your perspective on your failure. Not a power of positive thinking and inevitable crashing. A genuine, real-life, bona fide cure. And it's called a second chance. See, here in this story of the broken disciples and what they're about to do, Scripture provides a blueprint for what we should do with our regrets and then what Christ can do in turn. First, let's look. Let's look at what they did. We're told in Jesus' very hour of need, they deserted him and fled. We read that. They ran away. And you know what? They could have kept running. They could have stayed on their coward's path, left town, left the area completely, started a new life, completely forget about the past three years and, and about the teaching they received from him. Perhaps they could have taken on a new cause, 
made new friends, settled down somewhere else. A new adventure, a new occupation. Get your mind busy with something else. Anything, anything to put behind them their failure. To ease the shame of regret. You know what happens. We've seen people who just blow it. And they have too much pride to turn around. They keep going. They walk away from their convictions. They silence their conscience. And you know, they start to believe their own lies. They run away. But thank God the disciples didn't do that. They came back. Our first point, turn around and come back. Max Lucado says, seeking forgiveness, but not knowing where to look for it, the disciples came back. They gravitated to that same upper room that contained the sweet memories of broken bread and symbolic wine. They came back each with a scrapbook full of memories and a thin thread of hope, each knowing that it's all over, but in his heart hoping that the impossible will happen once more. If I had just one more chance. They turned around. They came back to their senses, and they went to the place Jesus last met with them. Back where he fellowshiped with them, back to the place where everything was all right. Before their failure, betrayal, disappointment, they came back to the place where Jesus had asked them to be strong, to hold on to their faith, to stand upon what he taught them. It's the first thing we need to do with our failures, our shame, our regrets. Stop running away. Get off the path of rebellion and sin. It leads nowhere. Get off the path that has so disappointed the Lord and go back. Remember Jonah? I mentioned Jonah. He ran away from God's command to go to Nineveh and preach to the people. And he, he ended up on a boat as far away as he could from where God wanted him to be. Then he ends up in a storm before long in the belly of a, of a big fish. When he finally came to his breaking point, what did he say? Lord, forgive me, rescue me. And you know what? Next opportunity I have, I'll obey. No. He said, Lord, forgive me. I'll go back this time. Go back to the place you were supposed to be. Back to the place you were called. Go back to your upper room. What's your upper room? Well, perhaps God called you to a ministry and you walked away from it. Perhaps he called you to foster a relationship with someone, and someone in need, and you stopped calling. Perhaps he asked you to take a stand for your faith at school or at work or in your marriage or in your family, and you, you did for a while, but then you stopped standing. Perhaps he asked you to, to fight against the hold of sin in your life, and you stopped fighting. Whatever the case may be, step one is to go back. Scripture's filled with this example. Jacob went back to Bethel. Moses went back to Egypt. The desert wandering Israelites went back to Jericho. Jonah went back to Nineveh. And now the disciples went back to the upper room. 
You know, there's a story told, a true story, about King Henry III growing tired of court life and, and the pressures of being the king. So he applied to a, a monastery to be accepted for a life of contemplation. His religious superior said to him, Your Majesty, do you understand that the pledge here is, is one of obedience? Are you aware that it will be hard for you because you've been a king for so long you're not used to taking orders? The king replied, I understand. As for the rest of my life, I will be obedient to you as Christ leads you. Then his superior suggested to him, good. Then go back to your throne and serve faithfully in the place where the Lord God has placed you. And King Henry III went back to the throne with renewed vigor. Friend, if you failed God in your life, if you're living with the shame of regret and guilt, nothing will ever be healed. Nothing will ever be fixed if you continue on the wayward path. Go back. Go back to where God wants you to be. Healing starts with going back. It's step one. A second chance starts with going back. Don't wait for next time. It may never come. Go back this time. Go back to your upper room. Step two, what did, what did they do next? Second, wait for his second chance. You know, when the, the disciples returned to the upper room, what did they do next? Did they put a plan together for the overthrow of Roman oppression and occupation? Did they set out on a revenge mission to make their statement and declare their cause? No, they, they waited with a thread of hope and the faith of a mustard seed, they waited. How many times do we set out to right our wrongs in an attempt to erase our regrets? We want to fix our mistakes. We want to make it like they never happened. You know what? They did happen. That's the reality. And nothing we do in our own power and in our own time can ever reverse our mistakes or the consequences of them. We need God's forgiveness. We need God's power, we need God's healing and His restoration. But most importantly, we need it in His timing. We can ask for forgiveness and God grants that right away. But restoration is in His hands. When, Lord? When are you going to fix things in my life? Jesus later told His disciples in Acts 1.14, He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by His own authority. He was speaking of the second coming, but this applies to everything in our lives we're waiting on God for. God will fix things. God will make things right. God will give you a second chance. But the timing is His own, not ours. But how do we live in the interim as we wait for the Father to fix everything that's wrong with our lives? Jesus only gives one word of instruction regarding what we do in the meantime. He tells the disciples they'll have to wait. Not exactly the kind of counsel we want to hear. Someone once said the most hated word in the English language is no. I don't agree. I think it's wait. <laughs> Our culture has conditioned us to seek instant, immediate gratification. We expect to get what we want and do what we want when we want, and not a moment 
later. Patience is lost today. Patience is a virtue that's, that's so lost on the, the vast majority of our society. We hate waiting. Whether we're at the doctor's office, the, the post office, the bank, in a checkout line at a grocery store, we live in a world of everything now. Fast cars, fast food, instant coffee, microwave ovens, everything. It can't happen soon enough. The last thing we want to be told to do is wait. But you know what? Learning to wait is so important. Those who've learned to wait are people that have learned more about what it means to have faith. He's telling them to hold on, to trust, to depend, to rely upon God. That's what we learn in the waiting. We learn to trust Him in the dark. We learn to savor His forgiveness. We learn to rely upon Him and His timing. Have you ever marched out in your own strength, in your own timing to fix things in your life? You dig a deeper hole. Things get worse, much worse. When God wants us to wait, the worst thing we can do is push forward on our own. Those three days the disciples endured must have felt like an eternity. Three days of shame and guilt. But they waited. They turned around, they went back to where God wanted them to be, and they waited for a second chance. And did their waiting pay off? Let's read Luke chapter 24, verse 36. We're back in the upper room in the midst of their tears and their regrets and their despair. Here we go, verse 36. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this to them, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. Spirit doesn't eat. He was there in the flesh. And he took it and ate in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. That's you, disciples. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Our third and final point, take hold of God's second chance and never look back. Boy, their contrition paid off. Their patience was rewarded. Jesus shows up, forgives them, fellowships with them, and lets them know that he still wants to use them to accomplish great things. 
Is that a second chance? Did they deserve it? No. Does he offer it? Every time. You know, Lord, I've failed before. And I'm probably going to fail again. I think it's best that I bow out. You know, Lord, I've been down that road before. I I tried that before. It wasn't a good fit for me. Perhaps I'm cut out for something different. Now, don't let defeat win. When God gives you a second chance, you don't hesitate. You don't debate. You don't even think it over. You take it. You run with it. You throw yourself and everything you have into it. You take pains to never again make the same mistake you made before. Roy Regals could have told us about this. On New Year's Day, 1929, Georgia Tech played the University of California in the Rose Bowl. Cal in the Rose Bowl. I don't know if we'll ever hear those words again, Matt. But in 1929, in that game, a man named Roy Regals was a Cal defensive player. He recovered a fumble for Cal, and somehow he became confused and started running as fast as he could, 65 yards the wrong way. (laughs) One of his teammates, Benny Lom, he outdistanced him, and he downed him just before he scored for the opposing team. And when Cal attempted to punt, Georgia Tech blocked the punt and scored a safety to take the lead. Strange play. It came in the first half, right before halftime, and everyone was, who was watching the game was asking the same question. What is Cal coach Nibs Price going to do with Roy Regals in the second half? The men filed off the field, went into the locker room. They sat down on the benches and on the floor, all but Regals. He put his towel around his shoulders, sat down in a corner, put his face in his hands, and cried like a baby. If you've played football, you know that a coach usually has a great deal to say to his team during halftime. That day, Coach Price said nothing. He was quiet. No doubt he was trying to decide what to do with Regals in the second half. The the timekeeper came in and said, three minutes, still playing time. Coach Price looked at the team, and he said simply, Men, the same team that played the first half will start the second. The players got up, started out, all but Regals. He didn't budge. The coach looked back and called to him again, and still, he didn't move. Coach Price went over to to Regals and sat down and said, Roy, did you hear me? The same team that played the first half We'll start the second. Then Roy Regals looked up. His cheeks were wet with a strong man's tears. Coach, he said, I can't do it to save my life. I've ruined you. I've ruined the University of California. I've ruined myself. I couldn't face that crowd in the stadium to save my life. Coach Price reached reached out and put his hand on Regal's shoulder and said to him, Roy, get up and go on back. The game is only half over. 
And Roy Regals went back. And those Georgia Tech men will tell you that they have never seen a man play football as Roy Regals played that second half. That's the right response to a second chance. The game's only half over. It's not too late. Show the Lord that his investment didn't go to waste. Show the Lord that his mercy and grace were not in vain. Take that second chance. And with God's help and power, make something great of it. What did those broken, scared, regretful disciples do with their second chance? Short answer, they changed the world. They spread the word to every corner of this planet. We're here today worshiping in a church because of their labor. What did they accomplish for Christ with their second chance? Listen. Andrew preached to what is modern-day Russia and Bulgaria. Bartholomew took the gospel and spread it to India. James, son of Zebedee, spread the gospel to Spain and Portugal. James, son of Alphaeus, preached the word in Egypt and North Africa. John preached the gospel to Asia Minor and went on to write the book of Revelation. Jude preached in Assyria and Persia, what is modern-day Iraq and Iran. Matthew helped spread the gospel to Ethiopia. Peter, forgiven for his loud denials, would spread the gospel to the Jews and later to Gentiles as well, carrying the gospel of Christ to Italy. Philip spread the gospel to what is modern-day Turkey. Simon the Zealot would carry the gospel first to Egypt, North Africa, and Carthage, and later to Syria, Spain, and Britain. Thomas got over his doubting ways and labored for Christ in Parthia, Persia, and India. Their labor, their efforts, their work for Christ set the world ablaze. They helped spread the gospel of Christ globally. Did they take advantage of their second chance Jesus offered? You bet. And what about those regrets? What about those upper room regrets about their failures on a Gethsemane night? Haunting? Hardly. Torturing? Not at all. Cured? Absolutely. Forgiven? All but a distant memory thanks to a God who forgives, forgets, restores, and offers a second chance. They went back to the place where God wanted them to be. They waited patiently for a second chance. And when he offered it, they took it, they ran with it, and they never looked back. So how about you today? Have you lived a life completely apart from God? Have you been running away from Him so long you don't even know how to start running back to Him? The good news, friend, is He'll meet you right where you are. He can give you the greatest second chance that there is. Salvation. Salvation is the greatest second chance of all. Only He can forgive your sins, pick you up, dust you off, 
clothe you in His righteousness and make you His heir. Only He can take those broken pieces of your life and turn them into something truly beautiful. Ask for His forgiveness today. Receive Him as your Savior. Receive His salvation this very hour. And you, dear believer, do you find yourself like those disciples, living with the shame and regrets of a life that has let God down? Are you living with failures, disappointments, abandonments? Did you run when God wanted you to stand? Did you quit when He wanted you to keep going? It's not too late. Game's only half over. We serve a God of second chances, and third, and fourth, and fifth. He never gives up on us. He never gives up on you. Turn around today. Turn back to Him. If you find yourself on the path running away from God or where He wants you to be, turn around. Go back. Ask for His forgiveness. Wait for His second chance. And when He gives it to you, take it. Make it worth His grace. Make it worth His mercy. Take advantage of the second chance He gives you and don't look back. He's the only one who can fix your life. He's the only one who can eradicate your fears, your guilt, your failures. Let Him do it. Let Him heal you and work in you to do great things. Only He can cure your upper room regrets. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for second chances. Thank You for the cure that only you can provide for our failures, our disappointments, our regrets. We wrap up the broken pieces of our lives today, Father, and we place them at your feet. Take them. Rebuild them. Take the rubble of our broken lives and turn them into something beautiful. We can't, Lord. We've tried. Only you can. Only you care enough about us. And only you have the power to bury our past and reinvent our future. We thank you and we love you, Father. In the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen.